Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder and executive director of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. And today we've got um, William G. Harris as our interviewee. Uh, William G. Harris serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Association of Test Publishers, ATP, which is the leading international organization for publishers of assessment programs. G. holds a doctorate from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, an MBA from Duke University, and an honorary doctorate from Excelsior College, where he also sits as a member of the Board of Trustees. He's responsible for the successful launch of the Operational Best Practices Guidance for Large-Scale Assessments and serves on the editorial board of several scholarly journals and chairs the U.S. delegation to the ISO Initiative on the Delivery of Workplace Assessment Services. Welcome, G. Really pleased to have you. John, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Me too. So let's let's get started with a question I like to ask everyone. Uh, How did you first get into the assessment world? Ah, it's, I guess it was not a very linear approach to the assessment world. During my graduate work, I did a lot of work on a Ford and a Rockefeller Foundation grant, I mean, two different grants, and, and that was in evaluation and, and statistics primarily. And it wasn't in psychology, it was in epidemiology. So I, hmm. I was uh, actively uh, working with the public health department of, of, of the university. When I left there, my very first job after getting my PhD was to help build a, a PhD program at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And that's where I started to develop an uh, interest in expert systems. This predates AI and, and everything since it was in the 1970s. And I worked in developing expert systems primarily with the computer science department at the Illinois Institute of Technology, and at the same time building a PhD program. I left there after getting the program accredited and was recruited to the head of research and marketing for a company that was going public. And my responsibility was to develop the pipeline of products prior to the public announcement. And so, and these were assessment tools. This was a wide range of personnel and clinical assessment tools. Uh, I did that for a while and moved on to develop assessment tools for the retail industry, where I actually got involved in advocating for the assessment industry at that point in time. Yeah, so tell me about that, because so when you're talking about assessment tools, you're meaning assessment tests that people use to select people. Is, is that right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. And then how did you get into the sort of more industry-focused role with the Association of Test Publishers? It was kind of coming through the back door because, as I said, I, I started to testify at the state and federal level to advocate for high-quality assessments as being different than polygraph examination results. Legislation was not differentiating scientifically-based assessments from polygraph examinations. And so I had the opportunity to do a lot of testifying in front of subcommittees. And this led me and my colleagues to develop the Association of Personnel Test Publishers, APTP. And this was the forerunner of ATP. And our success led other organizations that were not in the personnel selection industry to want to join us. Upon joining us, we dropped the personnel and became the Association of Test Publishers. And can you tell a little bit more about what was happening with the the government? So if I understand right, and I might not be, the U.S. government was actually thinking of outlawing certain kind of tests? 
Well, what had happened is that one of their expert witnesses at one of their subcommittees had basically put together a suggestion that polygraph examinations and personality measures of misbehavior were basically the same type of product. And we were able to go in with science in terms of research, substantial amount of science research that showed that these tests were valid, reliable, and um, highly predictable and that they were quite different from polygraph examinations, which lacked scientific basis, and for the most part were uh, considered to be unscientific. And in fact, their results are not even allowed in a court of law. They're inadmissible because they do not have validity to support them. So basically, if you and others hadn't uh, managed to get that happen, it might be that some kinds of tests would be illegal in the U.S. Absolutely. And what's interesting, if you look at the growth of measures of misbehavior or, or poor behavior in the workplace, there's been a growth of measures that started with personality measures to now a whole series of social judgment measures trying to understand an individual's behavior and whether that behavior is appropriate or not. So, yes, it basically would have eliminated an entire category of assessments. That category of assessment has actually moved forward, and many of the new assessments in, in terms of appropriate behavior focus on social judgment surveys, which is very prominent now in terms of the assessment industry. And can we move on to discuss about the Association of Test Publishers? So, how did it develop, and what is it, and why should people be interested in it? Well, the association actually, as I said before, was the Association of Personal Test Publishers. It morphed in, in the early 90s into the Association of Test Publishers, primarily because it was very successful in fighting back legislation at the federal and state level. I took on the role as the executive director back in 96. And at the time, we only had about 10 organizations, but we quickly grew in the next year in 97 to include education, certification, and licensure, and eventually workplace division. What we did is to identify quickly five different content areas or divisions. As I mentioned, certification, education, IO, which is business testing, clinical, and workplace. Those are the division chapters or the content chapters. And those chapters are inherent in our global effort, which includes a significant presence in Europe, Asia, India, North America, and most recently, we're in the process of developing a presence in the Middle East and Africa. We were fortunate that our work in Europe gave us opportunities to interface with organizations like the European Personnel Selection Office. And because of the European Personnel Selection Office, we created a public sector event that has now been actively engaged for the last 10 years. And so just to give you an example, the public sector basically looks at assessment, recruitment, and retention. These are the key areas in public sector, whether it's the government, NGOs, foundations, their recruitment efforts, their retention efforts, and assessment efforts are the focus of what we call a public sector event. And I can tell you that this has grown into a very reputable event. Last year, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe was the host. The previous year was NATO in this new campus. And prior to that, it was the United Nations Development Program in Copenhagen. So we're pretty excited about the fact that we have two very effective and engaged organizations in Europe at this point in time. And finally, we have a health sector organization that's being run by the Australian Medical Council's senior member. So we're pretty excited about the growth and the expansion of ATP worldwide.
and we're not finished growing. We, we still have South America and Central America to attend to, as well as Thailand and Vietnam. As some of you will know, I'm a, a director of the Association of Test Publishers, and I'm very impressed with all it does to help both the assessment industry and the assessment community. So just moving on a bit from the ATP, what I like to do is, is use these podcasts to give some people best practice advice and guidance in assessment. So what advice would you give to somebody starting out in assessment? Well, it's a double question because there's the practitioner who's starting out and there's also the business person who is starting out. The practitioner or the psychometrician or the measurement expert uh, in today's world, given the fact that everything has been digitized, has to be a far more sophisticated scientist or or researcher. And that means that the curriculum that he or she uh, pursues has to be quite extensive and broad. They need to be a scientist, a data scientist. They need to be well-versed in cognitive sciences. And they need to be a technologist because they need to stay very close to the rapidly emerging technology changes that are occurring in today's world. If I'm starting up as a company, I best not look to the past, but I better be looking to the future because the barriers to entries are low, but the market is evolving at such a rapid rate that You need to be very dynamic, appreciate disruption, and very digital. The rate of innovation is is accelerating and probably will not decelerate any time in the near future. This means that you need to understand that you're actually moving into the market to address and compete in the next generation of smart assessments. And I know one of the things that uh, you're very cogent and committed to is the sort of psychometric underpinnings of assessments and validity, reliability, and, and fairness. Would you like to explain to the audience, first of all, what, what does a, a valid test mean? What does validity mean and why is it important? Well, a superior assessment has to have at least those qualities, whether it's next generation or today's generation. They need to be valid, reliable, and fair. Those are the ultimate objectives in building a good assessment. When we talk about validity, we're talking about the degree to which accumulated evidence and theory support specific interpretation of test scores. These interpretations are consistent with the purpose of the test. And that's a very important principle in terms of any test that's being developed. And when it comes down to the reliability of the test, once again, it's the degree to which the test scores for a group of test takers are consistent over time or consistent in terms of repeated trials so that we know that the measurement is stable and that we can have confidence in using the test scores. There's quite a few different ways to look at fairness, but for our purpose, I think we wanna make sure that every test taker has access to the testing process in a very equitable way, and that there's a clear effort to eliminate bias. The absence of bias is is certainly very important. It's, It's important in terms of the testing process, And it's also important in terms of how we do our item analysis, whether we're doing differential item functioning or some other type of item bias analysis. We need to be very vigilant that the test items are as free of a bias or unfairness as possible. And obviously, having validity, reliability, and fairness as as key parts of, of the assessment process means that we have a better chance of defending the value and the purpose of the assessment. That's a really good explanation. Thank you. And so moving on to that, if you're looking to develop a good quality, best quality assessments, 
what sort of approaches should people take? Are there standards out there that that can help? John, there's there's several, and uh, certainly there's there's some that've been around for a very long time, and there's there's new ones that are beginning to enter the market or will enter the market. The oldest one is probably the standards for educational and psychological testing that was originally drafted in the early 1950s by the American Educational Research Association, the American Psychological Association, and uh, the National Council of Measurement and Education. These particular associations, back in in the 50s, just to make it clear, is that they were not all working on the same set of standards, but what they did is they came together and consolidated their different efforts. And that created the standards for educational and psychological testing. There is no legal standard available today any place in the globe for developing tests. The ad hoc effort has basically occurred because the market has given these standards the credibility and the value of being legal, even though they're not. And partly because of the fact that they are inherently found in uh, case law. And because they're in case law, that adds to their value and and, and their importance. But the standards that I just mentioned and all the other standards that I will mention are voluntary and aspirational. But once again, the market provides a way of making these standards more important than just aspirational and voluntary. The other is the ISO 1066 standard that was originally published in 2011 and is in the process of being updated and made available, most likely at the latter part of of 2020 or 2021. The assessment service delivery provides guidelines for not only the client who is purchasing assessment services, but also for the service provider in terms of provider and the client's responsibilities as it relates to working together, as well as their responsibilities to the individual who is taking the examination. Excellent set of of standards that have shown themselves to be very valuable, especially in Europe, and they're used as a guidance document in in many of the testing companies in North America. And then you have the technology assessments guidelines that ITC and ATP are putting together that will hopefully provide guidance on how to develop good digitally driven assessment products in in the next uh, year or two. These technology standards are being drafted as, as we speak. I'd like, to, I'd like to just give you a clear example, sure. uh, John, if I can. Uh, I mentioned the operational best practices for large-scale assessment is a product that belongs to ATP. Uh, it was published a couple of years back. It was just a document that was uh, a guidance document. It is now used and required in every state in the United States. That's an interesting way in which a document that is voluntary and aspirational is basically codified and institutionalized as a requirement. So which of particular documents, I think, would you encourage people to look at? So certainly the RA standards, anything else? What what about ISO 10667? Yeah, I I mentioned that uh, ISO 10667 assessment service delivery standards, part one for client, part two for service provider. Also, every country has a psychological association. Every country's association has guidance that needs to be considered as part of the test development effort. So how do things different in different countries? So I think you're one of the people who probably has a better perspective on on this as somebody who travels often to Asia and Europe and is based in, in the US. Is assessment very similar all around the world or are there significant differences? Well, the maturity of assessment as it relates to uh, selection 
and hiring of personnel is far more sophisticated and mature in, in Europe and the U.S., in North America in general. You don't have the same sophistication uh, when, when you t- turn to Asia. But when you turn to Asia, the first thing that comes to mind is educational assessments. And the reason for that is the Asian countries are obsessed with educating their children. And so one way in which they, they measure that is through examinations. And they, they do quite well on international exams and other types of assessment. It's well known that the mother of all examinations in terms of entrance is the GAIKO, which is used by Chinese. It's a three-day exam that is used to evaluate students before, uh, to see who should be entering higher education. But in, irregardless of that, you have a clear indication that the PISA, which is the Program for International Student Assessment, is a benchmark for how well Asia students are doing on educational exams. China and the various parts of China, from Shanghai to Hong Kong to Chinese Taiwan to China, Hong Kong, and Macau, are always at the very top in the last couple of years in terms of the, the PISA exams. And then you have Korea, Singapore, and Japan closely following. And then finally, you'll, you'll have countries outside of Asia. And the ones that come to mind immediately is Estonia, Finland, Ireland, Poland. They too are in the, the, the top group. And surprisingly, there's no U.S. In, in that top group, but there is Canada. Canada falls in the top group. So educational assessment is one of the areas that Asia is, is very active and very driven in, in terms of uh, testing. And it's partly because they also are in the forefront of educational technology. China is perhaps the most aggressive investor in educational technology in the world right now. And, and it's, it's beginning to show results. The other organization or country that's doing quite well is India, the number one tutorial company in the world and in the learning app of the world is Baiju. Baiju right now is capitalized at $5.5 billion, the most value company in ed tech today. So when, when we look at the world, we, we can learn a lot from the Asian countries because they really are doing a lot around the assessment and evaluation of students. When we want to evaluate the workforce, we go to Europe and we go to the United States because those two regions of the world are in the forefront of, of developing high-quality assessment for the workforce marketplace. I'd like to just mention that what's interesting in the last 12 years is the continual growth of AI shaping the educational environment. What I mean by that, just to give you a quick thumbnail sketch, the growth of AI technology in education has jumped dramatically in the last two years from 18,000 patents in terms of the last time data was available. In 2014, 18,000 patents. And and in 2015, 18.2 thousand patents. And that coincides not only with the whole technology-driven interest that that seems to be happening in Asia and the rest of the world, but also the fact that when it comes to STEM education, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics, the number of students graduating around the world is quite interesting. We have almost 4.7 million students graduating in 2015 from China. We have almost 2.6 graduating from India. And then it just falls off the cliff. Uh, Six-tenths of a million are graduating from from the U.S. And and that's the closest number to China and India. So uh, testing, assessment, 
educational assessments are, are very big in, in the Asian market. And I, I don't see that waning at any point in time. Uh, if anything, there will be continual growth in that area, and it will become more real-time driven um, in the next couple of years. Very interesting. And how do you see the future of assessment unfolding more generally? Well, digitization has already started transforming assessment. Uh, we already begin to see this global digital shift. Digitalization has already changed influenced market behavior, either uh, creating new markets or leading to the decline of old markets. And so what we expect to see happening is that real-time assessments will become much more prominent. We'll see this idea of going back to the noble way of learning, where every individual is basically being taught or given a personalized uh, educational experience. If you think back in the 16th century or the 15th century, if you were noble or you were from nobility, you had a tutor, and that tutor taught you all your courses, or you had a team of tutors that taught you all of your courses, and they taught you at the level in which you could understand. So they taught you at your pace. What we're going to see and what we're seeing is personalization of learning. And that personalization will mean that there will be a data streams coming from more than one source. They will be real-time and that the, the interventions in the diagnostics can occur immediately in terms of making sure that the individual has a very successful educational experience. We'll, we'll move away from what has been called the one-size-fit-all way of teaching or the one-size-fit-all teaching model. That model has been around for over 100 years. And unfortunately, that model is now becoming increasingly obsolete in terms of students and learners not having the, the proper skills to compete. There's a saying that was from the 1920s by a philosopher by the name of John Dewey that says, if you teach today's students as you taught yesterday's students, you rob them of tomorrow. That saying could be said today. Uh, so if we teach today's students in 2020 the way we taught yesterday's students in the 1990s, we will definitely rob them of, of their future. So I, I think it's very important that we begin to appreciate how digital learning models are going to redefine and reposition the whole concept of learning. I'll give you a simple example of a mobile app that is actually doing quite a bit. It's, it's out of France, and it's an app called Maker Match. A student is ID in terms of his or her learning style, whether they prefer text, audio, or video. And once that's identified, they ad adapt the courses to fit the learning profile. And not only do they adapt the courses to fit the student's learning profile, they develop a network of, of students who could collaborate together who have a similar way of learning. And so these are the ways in which we're seeing digitization change the way we assess and the way that we teach students. And there's clear traits about the digitalization of learning. Digitalization of learning is much more agile. It leads to more creative thinking, and it certainly improves and increases the level of communication. It's also very flexible. And because it's flexible, that means that collaborations like the one I just mentioned are far more likely to occur. 
Gee, that's really interesting to hear. And I think you have more of an overview of uh, the industry than, than most people. And uh, your perspective is very, very interesting. Um, just before we uh, close up here, would you like to talk a little bit about uh, the Association of Test Publishers? What kinds of organizations should look at joining it? And if they want to, people are interested, where should they reach out to? Well, um, obviously, we are eager to, because we're a global trade association, we are very interested in expanding our appeal and expanding our inclusiveness in terms of organizations. So NGOs, government entities, startup organizations, certainly uh, traditional publishers and developers of assessment, all of those organizations are, are certainly welcome in terms of ATP. ATP, like the assessment industry, has to transform. It has to fully embrace the dynamic, disruptive digital environment that we are now moving into at a rapid pace. And we have to understand that that will change the type of services, the type of needs of our, our membership. And so we believe that some of this distinction between government and, and commercial and public sector is going to become less and less important. And so we think that um, we've already started this process. We've been working with the Department of Transportation in Beijing. We've certainly had a number of conversations with the Edu Lab in Japan. These are government entities. And we see both of these countries much more receptive to the idea of becoming part of an organization, a trade association that has the enterprise of testing as its focus. We see these organizations seeing value in terms of being part of ATP. Thank you. And, and I certainly can give uh, validation. I mean, I find going to ATP conferences and engaging outside the conferences a really productive way to network and learn and communicate. And I think it's a fantastic organization. And thank you, G, for uh, being such a leader in, in making it happen. Well, thank you very much, John, for allowing me to, to be part of your, your podcast. And I, I hope it's useful. Uh, I think it's been a, a great interview, and I hope lots of other people enjoy listening to it. Thank you, G. Good. Thank you. Take care now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at questionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next time for another exciting podcast discussion. Mm -hmm.